Well, get your Bibles open. You need to be ready for the Word of the Lord as well this morning. And you can open it up to 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to be reading a number of verses from 1 Kings chapter 19. As I promised you a number of weeks ago, I'm going to talk this morning about the issue of depression. Depression. I found out that uh, many believe that depression has its root in unresolved anger. I found that to be interesting as I began to study a little bit about it. There are other aspects to it as well. One person defined depression as frozen rage. Isn't that an interesting word picture? Frozen rage. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of people, a lot of people in our culture, particularly American culture, deal with the issue at some level or another of depression or incredible discouragement. And so we want to talk about that this morning. This past week, um, Trace and I were able to get away uh, a little early for our 25th wedding anniversary. We were actually married 25 years ago in April. We were married on Easter weekend on Good Friday. I've always said that was the best Friday of my life. And uh, 25 years ago, we were married on Good Friday. And unfortunately, through the years, what, what has happened, and of course, when you're young and you're in love, you don't think about these things, and especially as you're going into the ministry. But we just, we just really didn't think through how for the rest of our lives we would be celebrating our anniversaries on Easter weekend. And how many know for a pastor that can kind of be a tough weekend to get away? And, and so what we've ended up doing through the years is we've had to sort of adjust our getaways and things like that uh, at other times in order to celebrate those high points in our, our relationship. But, but we got away this past week and we went up the road up the interstate to North Carolina and we stayed at the inn at, at Biltmore. And if you've never stayed there, wow, that was just incredible. I mean, I mean, you hear about five-star hotels that take care of you, but I'm here to tell you, they take care of you. And so we had a most enjoyable stay there, sort of being pampered for just a brief weekend. You'd like to live in that forever, but it's just not possible. Couldn't talk Trace into doing all those things, so anyway. But nonetheless, it was, it was one of those pampering weekends. And we went over, and, and I didn't even think I was going to like this. I really, and, and, and she was concerned that I wouldn't like it. Um, but we went to the big Biltmore Estate mansion. And, and to be honest, I'll just, I'll just fess up. I wasn't sure that I would enjoy it all that much. I mean, I just can't imagine spending, I don't know how much money, 40 bucks to go through a house. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but nonetheless, I went. And uh, it was something that uh, she was excited about, thought I would like it because of the history, and lo and behold, she was right. It was, it was just super interesting to go through this incredible mansion. How many of you have ever been to Biltmore, the Biltmore Estate and Mansion? A good number of you. If you've never had opportunity to take a trip and go, you don't have to stay at the inn there on the estate. You can, you can drive up that day and, and go and enter into the estate. And, and do that however you want to, but I would encourage you to go. That was, that's just a remarkable uh, building, construction. It took a thousand laborers six years to complete the building. They don't even know how much it cost then, and, and they're clueless as to what it would cost even to build now. The intricacies, 
that you would see on both the stone and the wood is mind-boggling. We, we went into different areas. Of course, there's the main living quarters, which will blow you away. But of course, behind the walls and behind the scenes are all of the servant quarters and hallways. And there were the ways the, the butlers and the maids got to where they needed to be and the attendants. And you would walk through these halls that no one would ever see. You would walk through these hallways where a servant would use this in order to get somewhere, but no guest and no Vanderbilt would ever be in that particular hallway. And you'd begin to look around and you would see the intricacies in the woodwork. And you would see the detail that would be there with regards to just the workmanship that took place in the house. I I could go on literally all morning and try to give you a word picture of, of the building and the awesomeness and... And, you know, they had all this intricacy outside. And, of course, there were, there were these gargoyles and, and all the things that you would imagine in a mansion. And, and the roof was originally gold-leafed, gold-plated. Can you imagine that? And, uh, anyway, it was just remarkable. And, and as you go into the building, you're given these headsets, which was really good because you can play with all these buttons. And if you're, you know, really, a, really kind of a techno kind of person or you can't get as quick as you want to the next room, you can go ahead and... Just listen to what's going on before you get there. So I was really happy about that. You know, you could kind of go at your own speed there. But um, you would go through all of this. And a part of the history was to explain a little bit of what they did in each room. Why the building was built. Why, why things were like they were. And, and those of you that have been there and heard the spiel, bear with me. But the whole reason for this existence, the whole reason the Vanderbilts built this sort of a, a building and getaway was for the singular purpose of being able to get away and to relax, to refuel, to recharge, to heal, to mend, to be able to just sort of get your senses back. And, and it, was, it was architecturally designed in such a way, even outside as you drove up to it, there, were, there, was, a, there was a method and a reason as to the way you would actually uh, weave your way up to the mansion itself. And all of it was done in order that people could find a place to retreat and and a place to to really get whole in as much as it is possible to get whole by just getting away. And for those of you that have seen it, you will know that the rolling mountains and hills and the views and the temperature and everything that is there is just a, a phenomenal, incredible place. And the key to it all was this, as I was thinking about it. Here was a man who at the time originally Vanderbilt, I guess, accrued about $100 million, which you got to remember is right around the turn of the the 19th to the 20th century. One of his sons doubled that fortune in 10 years to $200 million. And in order for us to understand how much money, that's a lot of money even today, but to understand how much money it was then, it is comparable to having $90 billion dollars. Now think about that for just a minute. You're in an era where there is no income tax. No income tax, $90 billion. And he spent an incalculable amount of money to build this estate. The whole reason for, remember, was to get whole. And and money, money that we can't even fathom was spent in order to bring that not only to themselves, but to bring that to guests who would come on a regular basis. Now, as I was thinking about that, And just sort of pondering and spinning those types of things in my mind. I I, I started to ask myself the question, how much am I willing to spend in order to pursue my wholeness? 
You say, well, if I had $90 billion, I'd spend a lot too. Well, you know, not everything can be accomplished by money. If it was just a matter of having money, the richest people in the world would be the most functional. But how many of you know there's a lot of dysfunction even in the mega wealthy? So it's not just about money, but it is about how much are you willing to spend, how much energy are you willing to put into something, how much, how much stick-to-itiveness, how much tenaciousness, how much resiliency. What, what, what are you willing to exert? What are you willing to spend in order to be whole? What are you willing to do in order to be normal? Billions of dollars, listen to me, billions. Everyone say billions. Billions, you can't even imagine how much a billion is. Billions, with an S, of dollars are spent every year in therapy, in counseling, in medications, in rehab centers. And yet, statistically, we're not getting any better as a culture, as a nation, or as a people. That's statistics. I mean, I'm not trying to pile on in in a person, high-profile person's life and 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 so i'm not trying to be mean about this but does anybody really believe that britney spears going to get better going to rehab do you really think i think there's something in all of us that just has something spinning in the background that says i wouldn't count on that so whatever we're spending and whatever we're doing and however we choose to have it applied to our life we 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 may need to start evaluating exactly what we're doing and how much energy we're putting into it. Now, when it comes to depression, I want to just give you some statistics. I I know a little bit about it. know a lot of folks have faced it through the years. A lot of folks even now are challenged in this particular area. I want you to know that God loves you. He's compassionate towards you. I am too. I'm just wanting you to be whole. I'm I'm wanting everyone to find a place of wholeness and normalcy. And I want you to join me on that pursuit. I'm not going to claim to have all the answers. In fact, I'm going to be a little bit better than a lot of doctors who think they have all the answers. I'll tell you right now, I may not have all the answers, but I'm genuinely pursuing the author of all the answers. So I want to give you just a couple of statistics so we can come to grips with some things that are going on. These statistics, which are going to include, and I'll define what bipolar means in just a moment. But these are depression-related illnesses from the National Institute of Mental Health. It's not from a preacher. It's not from a television evangelist. This is from the National Institute of Mental Health. Listen to their statistics. They say one in ten people face serious depression. That is at least, obviously, 10% of the population. The past 15 years, treatment for depression has doubled to over 25 million people, of which 90% of those 25 million are given antidepressant prescriptions. Now listen, there are over 4.6 million websites devoted to the treatment and information on depression. 4.6 million. Now this was the part that started to get my attention. 27% of all children are thought to be clinically depressed. Did you hear that? 27%. Now, like I said, I'm not a math guru. 
But listen to me. If 10% of the population currently would be considered to be depressed, and you've got 27% of children who are thought to be depressed, you know where we're going to be in about 10 years? Wow. Number four, medication statistics reveal. Now, I'm just, again, I'm reading off uh, 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 the National Institute of Mental Health. Medication statistics reveal that antidepressant medications work for only about 30% of the users. However, 100% of the users face all the side effects. In fact, one study indicated that placebos, which are basically sugar pills, were as effective as the medication. In the year 2002, these were the, the latest statistics I could find. In 2002, which now is five years ago, there were 31,655 suicides. I'll say that again. 31,655 suicides that could be directly linked to depression issues. Of which 80% of those, interestingly, were white males. Most believe that current statistics, if known, would double that. Indicating that more people die from depression than from drunk driving. More people die from depression than many other diseases that we would say are, are absolutely you know, astronomical in numbers and, and, and certainly tragic in their happening. That means depression-linked suicide is the number two cause of death in the United States after heart disease. Now let me give you this opinion research. 80%, now think about this, start adding up and, and just, just in, in simple math, think about this. 80% of people get no help or treatment of any kind when it comes to depression. 80% of people get no help or treatment of any kind when it comes to depression, which means this. If they know that 25 million people are facing that issue, you could nearly double that number. And let's just be conservative. There are probably 40 million people right now at some level who are facing a depression-related issue. 54%, they say, believe that is that to admit that you have it is a weakness. 41% are too embarrassed to seek help, and 15% of that number will attempt taking their own life. Now, I know what we begin to think, at least some people think, they'll say, well, that shouldn't be so for a Christian. Surely you can't think that Christians are in those statistics. That seems incompatible, it seems contradictory. And, and, and let me just say this as we begin to deal with it, that depression, listen to me, depression has a spiritual root to it. Just as a sickness, just as an organic sickness, I still believe has a spiritual root to it. So there's a spiritual root to depression, but it's not as simplistic as saying, well, you just need to pray more. Nor is it as simplistic as simply going to get a prescription and masking a symptom because you've just altered your mood chemically. Now hear me, and you'll hear me say this a couple of times, I'm not against medicine, and I'm not saying all you got to do is pray more. But you're going to have to listen to me. 
Because I have come to the conclusion that it is not God's will for us to live our whole life just being altered by chemicals. So we've got to understand what we need to do in order to get us to the place where we can begin to be normal and we can begin to be whole. And, and I believe it will take looking at what you do to your body. It will take looking at what's going on in your soul. And it will absolutely be critical that you open up your spirit to some things that God wants to do. All three of those things are going to have to find a place of wholeness in order for you to walk this particular thing out. Because I'm here to tell you, if 31,000 people, which are just those that they can identify, but let's say you would double it to 60,000 people, are killing themselves every year because they have a feeling of being hyper-discouraged or depressed, can we not at least say amen that the enemy's got his fingers in this somewhere? He sure enough does. So what I'm going to share with you are some things that I've begun to see, hey, we've all been very, very discouraged, maybe on the brink of depression, maybe some of you are clinically depressed. But I'm going to give you some things that I have come to a conclusion on, and I want you to listen, and I want you to not only listen to what I say, but I want you to begin to seek God for yourself as to what you need to do in order to find that place of wholeness that he promises. I believe it's there. And so I'm going to talk about the spiritual side of being depressed. 1 Kings chapter 19 I want to read to you a scene in the life of Elijah. 1 Kings 19, it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And I'll mention about what he did here in just a minute. Also how he executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now that's interesting. Keep, keep in mind, he leaves Beersheba, which belonged to Judah. But he himself, verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die. Now right there, Elijah is thinking suicide. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. Oh, self-pity is always an interesting thing. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. The spiritual side of being depressed, and we'll stop there. Now, as I read about Elijah here, I have come to the conclusion that Elijah fits the description of one who would be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. If Elijah were to go into a psychiatrist's office or into a, a psychological therapy session, 
and he would begin to talk about what had just taken place in his life and were to share all the incidents of what had just taken place, I can assure you that clinically he would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Bipolar is the clinical term, and again, I'm not an expert in these areas. I'll be the first to confess. I'm a lay person in the area of, of some of these identifications, but I can read. Bipolar is the clinical term for wild mood swings. Wild mood swings. One moment you have this incredible sense of confidence, of self-esteem. You're on top of the world. Life is good. You feel good about who you are, what you're doing, what's going on in your life. I mean, it couldn't be better. And then the next moment you're in depression. And you're wanting to take your life. It's all your fault. Everything that's happened is because of you. And you need to understand that Elijah faced that very happening. You remember Israel had gone wayward. They had put, you know, the Baals in the high places. Uh, do a lot with regards to Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab, as R.G. Lee once said, was a toad of a man. Because he was manipulated by the spirit that worked in Jezebel. And uh, Jezebel was the one that ushered in the pagan gods and that was set up in Israel. And so God calls Elijah to come to the moment and take to task all that was an error. And, and you know the story. He begins to set up this scenario there at Mount Carmel and he tells the prophets of Baal in chapter 18. He tells the prophets of Baal to, to do their thing and to dance and, and call out on their, to their God. And so, you know, they, they do their thing. In, in order to uh, see their God show up because he had, he had poured water on, on an altar and wanted, wanted whoever God's, you know, whoever's God was true to come and, and, and by fire and absorb the water on the altar. And, and so, uh, so the prophets of Baal did their thing and they danced and they marched and everything was silent. And then Elijah comes to the plate and he's ready to go to bat and call upon the one true God. And he looks at the people and man, he's just as bold as a lion, he looks at the people and he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? And, and he calls them to task and then he calls on the name of his God and God sends down the fire and it not only consumes the wood, but it, but it licks up all the moisture and all of the water and, and, and everything is consumed by the fire and I call it the greatest barbecue heaven ever sent. I mean, it, it was an incredible day of vindication as God showed up for Elijah and after that, he looked and he said, execute the false prophets. And so the people arose and all the false prophets of Baal were executed. And, and I mean, you couldn't have a greater spiritual moment, you wouldn't think, would you? I mean, imagine being able to call on God for fire and he sends fire. You want to talk about endorsement. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of any more endorsement than that. And he's on fire. He's challenging the nation. He's killing the false prophets. He's... He's just incredibly on top. And then all of a sudden, Jezebel hears about it. Sends off a letter. Basically says, I hear what you did. And I'm here to tell you the same thing you did to those prophets, I'm going to do to you. I'm going to do it as quick as I can get it done. And instantly something happens in him that spins him into a depression. And he runs and he sits under that juniper tree. And he begins to work through the thoughts and, 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 and the things that begin to twirl in a person's mind. And, and so as we begin just to use him sort of as our springboard in talking about this, I, I just want to say that depression, listen to me, depression is not necessarily a sign of spiritual failure. 
Are you with me? You can be feeling discouraged or depressed, but that doesn't mean you've necessarily failed spiritually. In fact, the Bible calls depression, I believe, the Bible calls it the spirit of heaviness. The spirit of heaviness. And I'll talk about that. If you want to know where depression is found in the Bible, I believe it's found in the phrase, the spirit of heaviness. Now, I want to talk about Elijah and what he reveals to us about depression. And, and I want to just take real, three real quick things. Bear with me. Number one, high-profile spiritual people can get depressed. You know, a lot of times, because of how you feel about yourself and your esteem levels, you probably would say, well, you know, I bet Pastor never gets depressed, or Trace never gets depressed, or my Connect leader never gets depressed, or no one in the world gets depressed but me. I'm here to tell you, billions of dollars are spent on depression, so somebody else but you is depressed, all right? Because if you got billions, then I hadn't seen that come through by way of your tithe. So, I just, so there's got to be more than just one or two people out there. But listen to this. Listen to David. David was king. And listen to a couple of the psalms he writes. Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Listen to this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, and from the hill Mizar. As he begins to write this psalm, he says out loud as he's writing it, he says, my soul is cast down. It's depressed. He writes it in one of his psalms. Psalm 43, verse 5, we see something very similar. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? And what does he do? He begins to speak to himself. Hope in God. I'm going to get to this point again, but let me just underscore it here. That if you've not learned to open up your mouth and talk to yourself, then you're not going to get better. And I'm not saying walk around going, woe is me, I am alone, all is lost, I want out of here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about hope in God, I shall overcome, God is for me, not against me, and I will prevail. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, all right? 69, Psalm 69 Verse 20, this is what we read. Reproach, it says, has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. Isn't that always true when you're depressed? You always want someone to say, oh, I can see that. Oh, poor, poor thing. You're just the poorest thing I know. I'm so sorry. You're right. You're depressed. I know I, there's no one I know that's worse, more worse off than you are. You are, you epitomize, epitomize that just which is sad. And that's what you're looking for. I need to find somebody to join with me in this thing. And for comforters, but I found none. Isn't it amazing? When you want someone to at least establish and affirm your depression, you can't even find them. But here it says right here that David felt it. You know what I started thinking? I started thinking, well, you know, if Jesus was touched by my infirmities and there was no temptation uh, known unto man that he did not face himself, then he must have faced this sometimes. Do you know in Matthew 26, verse 38, I believe there's, an, there's, there's a window here that shows us that even Jesus may have, have tasted of this. When it says, then Jesus said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Are you hearing what Jesus said? He said, there's something going on right now in my suke, my psyche, that, that, that right now is beckoning me to die. Now you can make that say... 
well, you know, he was going to go to the cross. But, but as I read that, I, he didn't go to the cross because of sorrow. The Bible says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So when it says that he was sorrowful even to death, I believe that there was something going on inside of him that he began to taste of the depression that human beings at large taste at times. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, this was when probably Nero or Domitian, one of those despotic, crazed Caesars in Rome, was killing Christians. We see Peter saying something to the early church, to the church at large. In verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. And what he said was, You're being kept by the power of God. There's an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. There's some good things that God has provided. And so you rejoice over your future. He says, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved or it says distressed by various trials. I don't know about you, but when you're in the midst of a trial, has anyone here but me just been a tad bit distressed, grieved or even depressed by a trial? Now, okay, you. Lord, give us truth here in the house this morning. All right. So it is possible, listen to me, that a Christian believer will have to confront issues of depression. I mentioned to you several weeks ago, Martin Luther, you may not know this, but, but he was riddled with depression, absolutely consumed with the issues of darkness. Wesley, in his writings, we all hear about his Aldersgate experience, but I can read you things in his journal which will indicate to you very clearly that there were moments of deep discouragement which we might define as clinical depression i could go down through all sorts of saints through the years that have been depressed so understand high profile spiritual people can get depressed and so folks that go and say to me i never get discouraged i never get depressed i'm always smiling and i'm always optimistic well you maybe i don't know but i'm saying statistically you're probably not shooting straight with me just all the time secondly Elijah was depressed after there was a manifestation of great spiritual victory. After that great showdown at Mount Carmel, that's when he faced his hit. Now, years ago, let me just tell you a quick little story. I, I finally prevailed over this. There's still discouragement that can come into my life. And, and there have been moments where it can tip over, I'm going to talk about this, into even depression. But listen to me very carefully. Years ago, years ago, when I first got into the renewal movement and full gospel circles and God began to, you know, use me in certain ways and I could see God moving in my life and a lot of times I got to, I got to go away somewhere and speak and maybe there'd be, a, you know, a prophetic word or some things would happen where God would show up big time and there'd just be incredible victory. What would happen after that Sunday is on Monday which was my day off then, I would go over to Tracy's grandmother's house and I would mow her lawn, which was about five acres. And so it would nearly take me all day to do all the trimming and hedge clipping and mowing that would need to take place at her house. But I'd be sitting on that tractor on Monday, driving around. And for those of you that ever have driven a, a, a riding lawnmower or even push a lawnmower and that hum that begins to come out of that engine, it is amazing to me how out of that hum not only could God speak to you, but Satan can talk to you. And your mind is just kind of in a, in a zone. And all of a sudden, you find yourself just weaving along to a place where something begins to happen. You begin to question yourself. You begin to say, did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? 
You know, you begin to second guess yourself. You begin to create scenarios, speculations, things. And all these things are stirring around in you. And you just left this great meeting on Sunday. But here you are on Monday on the lawn tractor writing out your resignation trying to figure out how you can leave town, you know, walk away. You're trying, I mean, all this crazy stuff is going through your mind. And you just had a spiritual victory. Now, the reason I'm telling you that story is because some of you will come out of church on Sunday and you'll have a spiritual victory and you're on top and you're cheering and God is good. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Shop-a-dop-a-ding-dong. I got it. And then you'll go out on Monday and your mind goes nuts. Crazy thoughts. Stupid things if you could just stop for a minute. Now, you need to understand there are some natural things that are happening at that particular moment. But you need to just be aware. And, and a part of the breaking of that cycle in me was an awareness that that very much can happen. I'm here to tell you, I'm not speaking this into existence because we're going to break it. But I, I've got to make you aware of it. That some of you will get ministered to this morning and you'll think you got a breakthrough, but then you won't be sure because tomorrow morning those thoughts will begin to spin and what you'll say is, oh, it doesn't work. Pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. God doesn't love me. It really doesn't work for me. And you don't get what's going on. You need to start getting what's going on right now. Depression can happen after great spiritual victory. And then finally, number three, it can be triggered by a trauma. And the trauma doesn't have to be immense. It can be, it can be large, certainly. But it can also be small as well. Jezebel's note to Elijah was the trauma that triggered the depression that began to enter into Elijah's psyche. Now, it was just words. It was just a little letter, a little note, a little telegram. You would think after fire came down and all that took place, what would just a little telegram do to you? Well, it did to Elijah the same thing a little phone call does to you. You can be having a perfectly good day. And then you'll get this phone call, someone will say something, and all of a sudden it triggers your downward spiral. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be abused to the nth degree in order to be dysfunctional. You don't have to be just totally outlandishly traumatized in order to be depressed. I'm telling you, we're living in a culture that's fostering an atmosphere that is causing each one of us with the littlest of traumas to enter into things that the enemy is using to bring us to the point of destruction. So understand even the littlest of traumas can begin to trigger depression. Now, let me talk just for a minute, and I think this will help you, to give you, I, I haven't read this anywhere, this has just been from my experience of dealing with people, and a little bit, I think, even with myself. I, I'm going to give you at least three levels, I believe, of depression. Three levels that, that people... Can, can spiral to if they're not aware of it. The first one is what I'll just call general discouragement. Now, everybody in the room at some time or another has been discouraged. I mean, that's just the human plight. It's the human condition that we get discouraged at times. General discouragement is you feel... Now, next week I think I'm going to talk a little bit about feelings. But you feel inside somewhat hopeless. But despite how you feel inside, you know it's going to probably change for the better. You've been around, lived long enough that you know it's probably going to change for the better. Yes, you're discouraged, but you probably can just take a great big deep breath and say, well, I'm going to go on, I'm going to believe God, I'm going to keep going forward. And eventually that discouragement goes somewhere, it wears off, 
you may never have thought about it, but somehow or another, it's just, it's gone from your life. But there are those moments that you feel hopeless, and you're generally discouraged, but generally also you know it could change. That's the first level. The second level is what we'll call functional, functional depression. Functional depression, I would define as this. Your hopelessness is ingrained in your thought patterns. In other words, it doesn't go away. It's ingrained in your thought patterns. You, you, can, you can function in life, and you do, but that doesn't mean the discouragement has left. It's ingrained in your thought pattern. However, despite it being ingrained in your thought pattern, you're not so discouraged as to paralyze you when it comes to walking out life. In other words, you can still get up, you can go to work, you go to school, you function as a parent, a spouse, you do all the things you're going to do, but, but there's a thought pattern that has been ingrained to where you really believe this is life, I really can't do anything about it, it's never going to change, and, and you may never even speak it or say it, but it's ingrained in that thought pattern, but you're still functional in life. The last level or the third level is what I call incapacitating depression incapacitating depression that is not only that you feel hopeless it's not only that it is ingrained in your thought patterns in fact let me just say with the functional the functional depression so i can make a distinguishing difference here in functional depression you will have thoughts of suicide but you will you'll never really follow through on it although you think about it but when it's to incapacitating depression your hopelessness shuts you down Sometimes it can shut you down for a few days. Sometimes it'll shut you down for much longer than that. It can shut down whole areas of life that you can't even begin to move into. And you begin, when suicide enters into the thinking, you begin to seriously contemplate that as a valid option in your mind. That is incapacitating depression. Now, one more time, I'm going to say this in order that hopefully a veil is torn from people's eyes so that you can begin to see this in the light. Can you not see the enemy in here? Can you, can you not get a hold of the fact that the enemy wants to kill you, to destroy you? You say, well, what can I do about it? Well, what can a Christian do to combat this? Now, let me just say a couple things. There are both natural and spiritual things that I believe have to be done in order for you to begin to combat this area in your life. You, can't just, you just can't pick up one thing and say, if I do this one thing, I can beat it. No, there's going to be several things that you're going to have to begin to implement in your life. Listen to me one more time. If you want to get free and whole, how much energy are you willing to spend? All right, so understand there's several things that are going to have to happen. The upsurge in our culture of depression says to me that our current lifestyles and choices may be aggravating our psyches from functioning as God intended. I find it fascinating that in 15 years we can double this issue and the only thing that's changed is our culture. So there's something going on in our culture that's happening that's causing a great, a wider spread influence of depression than perhaps what was there in earlier days. The Bible tells me that in latter days, this is in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Bible says that in latter days that spirits will be loosed in the earth that... Paul wrote would be far more deceiving and beguiling than any other time in history. So hear me, there's going to be a spirit of deception in the earth that's going to be far greater 
than we've ever even originally imagined. And I believe that includes the spirit of heaviness. You know, we'll always identify divination, the spirit of divination, and we'll identify, you know, lust and, you know, what we consider to be the big daddy spirits, you know. But I'm here to tell you the spirit of heaviness is upon our land and upon the people of God, and it is more deceiving and beguiling than ever before. And that has to be broken in people's lives. And, and I want you also to know this, and I wrote this down because I know when people hear me, they, they do sometimes smart things and then they do other dumb things. I'm going I'm to talk again, I'm, I'm hurrying. I'm not against medication. I'm going to talk about this though in just a minute. I don't want you to walk out of here today and just cold turkey something. Listen to me. I, I want you to be whole but you're going to have to understand the totality of what I'm going to talk about. So I want you to know, though, right now as I get started, I'm not necessarily against medication. Medication has a place. But before we pop pills, let's just be sure we're not medicating a spirit that can be addressed by some other more effective means. All right, I understand you may take a Tylenol at times and ibuprofen. I'm not against that. Thank God for it. At times, it's helpful. There are times antibiotics are helpful. There are times medication. I believe God, God is the one that releases knowledge in the earth. All knowledge springs ultimately from God. And I believe there are times that it is appropriate to have that in our life. But I'm saying this, that if, if we're living off a pill, something's not quite right. So let's at least talk about it. Now let me give you, I, I put eight things down here, but I, I, I think there may be a couple more that popped in my mind even as I'm talking to you this morning. Number one is this, are you getting enough sleep? Isn't that spiritual? You know, there's a biology as well as a spiritual side of how we're created. You know, there's a reason that things look worse at night than they do in the morning. You know, the Bible says that joy comes in the morning. You know why it says joy comes in the morning? Because you got a good night's sleep. It is inevitable. If you will begin to think about when a lot of your fights occur, when a lot of your stresses occur, you would be amazed at the proportionate amount that it happens at night. And the reason it happens at night is because you're tired, you're worn out, your mind's frazzled from the day. And to be candid with you, a lot of things can be addressed if you're getting enough sleep. Is it not interesting that when he gets the telegram from Jezebel, he runs out, sits under the juniper tree, and it says here that he has to sleep. And I believe that's in the economy of God. Are you getting enough sleep? Fatigue. Fatigue can be a part of your depression. If you're trying to do everything under the sun and you're burning a candle, so to speak, at both ends, and you're just plain tired, you, you are going to be a prime candidate for some mental, psychological issues going on in your life. So you've got to get enough sleep. Get enough sleep. Number two, are you eating correctly? Now, I haven't started out real spiritual, have I? But this is important. I am told, as I was studying this, that in emergency rooms, when people are admitted in a, into an emergency room for a, a manic episode or some depress, depression episode, that the first thing they will do oftentimes is feed them. Just give them something to eat. Put some protein in their body. You know, there's something about what you put into your body 
works in such a way, God's designed it in such a way that it helps you function. Every aspect of your being will begin to function correctly. If all you eat are Twinkies and Doritos, you will think like a Twinkie and a Dorito. You won't just look like one, you'll think like one. Are you hearing me? It all works together. Your diet can affect the way you feel. So if you're going to eat cruddy stuff continually, you're going to feel cruddy. I mean, how many of you parents know that you have to be very careful how much sugar you dispense to your children? Am I not speaking the truth? How many of you know that teachers do not want them eating snicker bars for lunch? You know why? Because the food they put in their mouth affects their behavior, their outlook, everything about them. It it's all boils down to eating. It's interesting that, that we'll say to ourselves, well, we can't give kids sugar because they're just, you know, they're going to be crawling the walls if we give them some sugar. And so we'll, as parents, adjust their diets and make sure they're well fed in the morning to make sure everything works all right. But when we get of age, we don't care. We just... Mm, 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 mm. And we'll just throw stuff in our mouth because it's quick, it's easy, or whatever the case may be. And then we're surprised when it causes our feelings to change, even as an adult. Do you think that when you turn like 18 or something, you, you're just, your body goes, oh, I'm 18 now, so you just put the Twinkies in, please, you know, and just, do you think that's what happens? No. The same thing that happens to kids in their little bodies begins to happen to adults. True, it affects how we feel. It affects how we think. The angel told Elijah to eat, to arise and to eat. Number three. I'll get to the spiritual stuff. I know some of you are going, well, that ain't very spiritual here. Well, you know, the problem is we've been, we've been laying hands and doing spiritual stuff, but, but you've got to put it all together. In this, we've got to understand that Jesus is Lord comprehensively. You know, he, he, is, he is Lord of, of my whole life, not just my spiritual life, but my physical life, my psychological life. He's Lord of everything. Otherwise, what we begin to develop is this compartmentalization, which begins to beget a heresy which says, well, I can go think, feel, do, and act what I want, but my spirit's right. Well, no, it's not. It's not right. He's Lord of all. Number three, are you getting exercise or being sedentary? I'm just reading from Elijah there. I, really, I just started looking. Angel said, get up. Get up. You know, when you're depressed, you like to stay in bed. You need your sleep. But there comes a moment you just need to get up. Get up. Sleep is important. But don't lay around all day. It's fascinating what happens. I, I've been learning this. You know, January the 1st, I started my routine again. I do this every January the 1st. I start my routine again. With regard to, I, I say that because I want you to know that I too can, can let things slide. But, but I started my exercise routine again. I've, I've been in the hunt. I've been doing some things and implemented a couple things in my life. Been, been working on cutting out some of the chemicals I put in through sweeteners and trying to work my life just a little bit different. But it's interesting to me that when you first start exercising, your body goes, stop. What are you doing to me? This hurts, I'm sore. No, you will not do that tomorrow. I mean, that's what your whole body, every circuit in your body is going, stop that, stop that, stop that. But there's something in you that says, no, I know I need to be healthier in my life. And so the next day, even though as you're doing it, every muscle is going, I am going to fight you the whole way. I'll never forget that second day on the elliptical machine. I mean, I'm talking from about there 
to right about here, my whole, every circuit was going, you're going to dread this whole 30 minutes right here. And by golly, I, they were right. There was nothing the remotely pleasurable about that. And then even the next day, the third day, I'm back on that elliptical machine. And, and, they, and it wasn't quite as loud, but it was still kind of loud. And they're talking to me still. Everything's talking to me. You don't really want to do this. Nobody else has to do it. You're of age. You can just let this go. Nobody really cares. But the fascinating thing that begins to happen is if you can get through a week and a second week and you begin to get in a routine that pretty soon when you don't get on that elliptical, your body starts saying, hey, why aren't we exercising today? Isn't that amazing? There's something in the body that craves the sweat that craves the adrenaline and the endorphins. When exercise used to make you feel bad, you now feel bad if you don't get to exercise. But you've got to get up, get moving, press through that, and everything will be telling you to stop, but you're going to have to say, I don't listen to you anymore, and I'm going to do what I need to do. Are you getting exercise? It's amazing how that can change. I tell you, when I exercise, I feel better about life. Life looks better. Got a little more energy. It's good. Number four, avoid being alone. When Elijah moaned about being the only one, he was entering into self-pity and isolation. So if you're feeling depressed, listen to me. Don't be alone. Call somebody. You say, well, I tried calling my friends. I tried calling the church one time. Nobody was there. Hey, listen. Get, get up. Get in your car. Go to a mall. And talk to people in the mall if you have to. What? Hear me. My job, a connect leader's job, another Christian's job, is not to keep you from getting depressed. Your job is for you to get up and quit being depressed. That's the responsibility part of it. Now, I'm not, I'm not pounding you. I understand it's a real deal thing. It's real. But you've got to reach the place where you say, I cannot be alone, so I'm going to go walk in the park. I'm going to go talk to somebody. I'm going to just window shop them all. I'm going to go downtown and walk somewhere. But whatever it is to do, don't be alone. Get involved with your kids at school. Go volunteer somewhere. Do Say hi to people. Just do an experiment one day. Go to the Charleston International Airport and sit there and say hi to people as they come off the plane. I don't know. But I mean, there's thousands of things you can do and avoid being alone. Number five, you need to get perspective through the hearing of the word. The worst thing a depressed person can do is stay away from where you hear the word and the truth of God's promises. Now again, it's everything in your body is going to say, I don't want to go, don't do that, stop, stop, stop. But you're going to have to break through that. Proverbs 12, 25, listen to this. It says, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. Where are you going to hear a good word? Hanging around with that voice that's telling you all to kill yourself? Kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. There are 30 ways to leave yourself. And Oh, I'm just going to hang around with that. No, you've got, you've got to put yourself in an environment that you can get the true perspective from listening to what God has to say about it. Depression will make little hills into massive mountains. You need to hear from God who says in his word, I will make the mountains flat. You're making the mountains massive and God says, I'll, I'll knock them silly. 
And you need to get that perspective. Number six, you need to begin to sing praise to God. Again, you've got to to make yourself choose to do these things. Sing praise to God. Isaiah 61, verse 3. Listen to this. It says, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You've got to put on the garment of praise if you're facing the spirit of heaviness. You got to put the CD in the player. I mean, you need to find the praise stuff that will blast you out of your depression. Don't go get, don't go get, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. I don't think the 50 favorite hymns of Martin Luther may do it. You need to get, you need to get something with some horns and cymbals and you need to get blasted out of that depression. Stick that thing in, turn that thing up and just blast yourself. I believe it. I believe it. I'm not. Now you, under, you understand my heart. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. If that ministers to you, wonderful. But I'm saying you've got to find something that will blast you out of that moment. You gotta, and then you've got to make yourself sing the words. Make yourself. Yeah, you can dance a little bit. That'd be good too. Listen, David. Listen, David would play his harp. And it was the only thing that would relieve King Saul's depression and, and demonic influence. He would have David come and play the harp. So you got to sing praise to God. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, go for 15 bucks. Go get yourself a CD and, and get you a boom box that everybody's got a boom box or just, and just turn the volume up and just let it blast you. And you'd be amazed at what will happen. Satan doesn't want to hang around that stuff. Number seven, you got to give thanks continually. Put the word in your mouth and begin to thank God for something before you feel it. Now, I'm going to talk, I I really believe next week I'm going to talk about feelings. And I'm going to talk about the place of feelings. But you've got to learn that feelings do not control you. You must control your feelings. You've got to get this. Most of us right now act, decide, choose in life based on how we feel. Some feeling comes into us and we, we do this without a moment's reflection, without a moment's analysis. Without a moment of, of consideration. I've got a feeling, therefore I must. It's like a, it's like a famous philosopher, I feel, therefore I must. That, that is so wrong. A feeling is, is, is something that is, that is, it, it is, it is nebulous. It is, it is something that is not necessarily real. I mean, some of you have had feelings that were the exact opposite of reality. And yet we feel, therefore, we just r- relent to it. We've got to stop and begin to challenge that feeling. And one of the ways you can challenge it is when you're feeling yourself sink, you start having to say out loud, everyone say out loud. You cannot just think it out loud. You say, I'm not going down. I am coming up. I am going to arise. I bless the Lord, O my soul. Listen to me, soul. I know you're in there. Rise. I, I encourage myself. Oh, 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 just shut up. I rise. I know you're a liar. You, those feel, that's a lying feeling right there. Arise in the name of Jesus. Greatness is coming my direction. Change, goodness is coming my way. Ha, I know, I know you don't like to hear that and I know what you're saying for me to feel right now. I choose not to feel that way. I'm going to keep talking this way. 
Hallelujah. Amen. Billions of dollars in therapy can be solved by talking down your shirt. Second Corinthians chapter 10. I'm coming down for a landing here. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. It's a familiar verse. If it's not underlined in your Bible, you need to get this underlined. And I'm going to explain something that I just got this week. Second Corinthians 10 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God. Man, if something's mighty in God, then it's mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds. Listen, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And this is the part I feel like I got a little bit new revelation on, or at least enhanced revelation. Bringing every thought into captivity. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We must learn, number eight, what it means to take captive. Now, I've read that verse hundreds of times. You've heard it. I'm sure you've read it yourself. And there are several things here that are interesting that we could pull out. But we've got to learn when it comes to the inner issues, whether it be depression or any other mental, psychological, emotional issue that stirs around inside of us, we have got to learn what it means to take something captive. Now, I am told that psychiatrists believe, and this is really interesting to me, because it kind of fits in numbers of areas, they will tell you that a lot of psychological problems or issues, or, or, or mental issues, come through what they say is the gene pool. A lot of it is hereditary, they'll tell you. I, this is the thing I've always wanted someone to say. I will believe anything. I'm really not against science, but I want someone to show me the depression gene. Show it to me. You know, take, take the genes out, do the DNA. Hey, they, hey, all I know is Horatio can DNA anything on CSI Miami. I want to see, I want to see, I want to see the bipolar gene. I mean, I'm not against it. I'm not picking. Don't misunderstand me. But, but I want to I'm, show me show me the lust gene. Show me the homosexual gene. Show me the polygamy gene. Show me. Show me the murder gene. The hate gene. I mean, just show me. If you'll show me and I can see it and you can say, this is normal gene, but here we are. This is the bad gene. This is the depression gene. Now, they will never do that. Because it is linked, listen to me, because these things are linked in the spirit to something. And the gene pool is the scientific way of saying generational curse. And we need to understand that this cross that Jesus hung on breaks the curse, Galatians 3.13. It breaks the gene pool. And you've got to begin by breaking that hereditary aspect through the power of the cross in order that you can begin to function whole. The cross, listen to me, Jesus was broken in order that you might be made whole. Are you hearing that? He took upon every dysfunctionality you and I have as human beings. He embraced it. He became it. He wasn't, it wasn't just an allegory or illustration. He became sin 
in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He was broken and bruised and killed in order that we might have life and wholeness and functionality. But we've got to learn what it means to take something captive. So we've got to have that broken off our life. We've got to begin to renounce the spirit of heaviness. I'm tired of having somebody, I don't care if they're well-meaning, they're good Christian doctors, good Christian therapists, good Christian psychologists. I'm not attacking people. Listen to me very carefully. But just because someone looks me in the eye and says that I'm depressed doesn't necessarily mean I have to keep saying it over and over and over again. Thank you very much. I appreciate your diagnosis and your analysis. I'll send you my $25 copay and my insurance company will send you the extra $150 for that analysis. Now, I am not depressed in Jesus' name. I'm not. I renounce the spirit of heaviness. I'm not just because it was spoken doesn't mean I have to keep saying it and saying it and saying it. we got to start renouncing and renouncing and renouncing and renouncing. No, I'm not. 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 Well, I did it seven times. Then do it eight times. Do it ten times. Do it a hundred times. No, I'm not. No, I am not. And when you can get in that mode, then you're going to begin to understand what it means to take something captive. This came into my mind. I'm going to be done with this. I always talk too long. I said to myself today, I'm going to be on target. I'm going to say. And, you, and you sweet, sweet people, just hang with me. All right. Every now and then, our cat, Toulouse, has to go to the vet. Getting a cat to the vet. He's got this carrier. It's the only way you can get him there. Have you ever noticed a cat has this capacity to get away and to put itself in places where there is no human way possible that you can get him? And so whenever he sees that carrier come out, I mean, of all the things to lose is, he is not a dumb cat. He sees that carrier come out of the closet and boom, he's gone. <laughs> he sees that thing and he says, ain't no way. He said, you ain't getting me. You are not getting me in that carrier. And so what we have to do is we have to figure out from that point how to take Toulouse captive. So we start looking for him. And of course you look for him in all the places where he usually hides out and stuff. And a lot of times it can be under a bed or any one of a number of different places. But it's always just at your fingertips, wherever it is. So I remember one time, Toulouse had to get in the carrier. I don't know why. Maybe we may have been going somewhere. It may have been to the vet. But we had to get him in that carrier. And I think he was under the bed. And he was just at the place where I could barely reach him. And you know how it is. You're reaching. And, 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 and he's, just, he's just putting himself in that corner. He's just melting into the corner. And I'm reaching in there trying to get him. And, and I'm going, you better not let me get you. And there comes a moment, I'm not joking, there comes a moment when you go, just leave more cat food out for him and just leave, leave him go. Just feed him and leave him go. It's not worth the energy or the effort or what it takes for me to do that. But there are sometimes you just can't let the cat go. The cat's got to go. It's got to go get its shots. It's got to go be taken care of. It's got to do whatever they do, you know. And so I'm sitting there and you're just going, come on. And so finally you kind of get him. You get a leg. 
Have you ever had a cat by the leg? I can't even do it. I mean, they, they, they can get that thing going so fast. It's faster than the human eye can see the way they shake that thing. But you get a hold of that cat and, and, and then it curls, you know, and it does. And you're just pulling along. and that ca- Now, here's the good thing about Toulouse. We took out every claw. Because I would not recommend this. Even if they have two sets of claws, I would not recommend this. But he still has his teeth. So he's curled up and going, you know, and he's just flip-flopping every which way. You know, you're under the bed like this, and it's just kind of going like, and you're dragging him slowly. And then he gets out of his corner, and then he swings around with his head and goes... And just, just sets his, those kitty fangs right there in you. It's like, it's, it's like at this moment, there's good news and there's bad news. The, the bad news, it really hurts. The good news is you got him and he's got you. And you can pull him out. And just by that leg and his teeth, you can just lift him up and you can just... You open it up and just, and you get him in the carrier. It's not quite like that. But But taking him captive. But this is what was interesting just the other day. He was going to the vet, I think, the other day, and Tracy had brought him by the office here. And so we just kind of got in a funny mood, and we said, hey, let's let Toulouse out. So we shut the doors, you know, we, we, as best as a human being could do, we're looking at it, is there any hole here he can get into that we may never see him again here at the Ashley Landing Mall if there's a hole here. So we got everything closed and we opened him up and we let him out of his carrier and he came out because he was in an unrecognizable place. And it was interesting, he, he, he walked around a little bit, yowled a lot, but then I've never seen him do this before. All of a sudden, he just, he turned around and he walked back to his carrier. And he just walked right back in. I'd never seen him do that before. I said, that is amazing. He just, all of a sudden, it was, he, he was in a different place. And he said, I'm not used to this place. And he went back in his carrier. Now listen to me very carefully. Some of you have thoughts, depressing thoughts. Some of you have suicidal thoughts. You have thoughts going through your mind that are just like Toulouse. And you tried to get a hold of it. And you couldn't get a hold of it. You just can't get your hand on it. And there are times you're just going, it's just not worth it. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just go to the doctor and I'll get a pill. And I'll just tell you what. I'll just medicate the cat. And that, that's an easier way to carry cats, isn't it? You just medicate them. Just put them out and get them in the carrier. But here's the key. If you will continue to be relentless in getting a hold of that thing in Jesus' name. Here's what's going to happen. You'll get a hold of it, and yeah, it'll sink its teeth into you, and sometimes it hurts. But if you'll get a hold of it and pull it out and get it in its carrier, and you'll learn how to keep taking it captive, there's going to be a moment that you're going to reach a new place, and that thing will open up and try to get loose in you, and it may walk around and look, and it'll say, you know what, I don't recognize this house anymore. There's something different about this house. I tell you what, I don't know that I even want to be in this house anymore. And that thought will turn back around and it'll go right back in that cage. Listen to me. Just like a cocaine addict 
will struggle, 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 struggle. Just like a heroin addict will struggle, struggle, struggle. Just like anyone from any addiction has seasons of struggle. If you will lay hold and keep hold of that, keep putting it in that carrier, there's going to be a moment. We got to believe this. We have got to believe there will be a moment that God will set you free that that thing will change in you and you will change and when it seeks to come back, it won't recognize the house it's in. Some of you right now, hear me. God wants to so rock your world and rearrange your house that when that depressing thought comes, it won't recognize, well, I must be in the wrong location here. Obviously, this person is not the one I'm supposed to be with. But you've got to arise and begin to do what you need to do in order for that to take place that lawn mower oppression that I faced the lawn mower moments had to be fought they had to be fought they had to be fought until finally I can have a great service and I don't resign on Monday hallelujah it'll work for you too and here we go you don't know listen to me if you're on a medication listen to me listen to me very carefully Do not, I repeat, do not go cold turkey this afternoon. In fact, when your body has adjusted to certain chemicals to just stop, could be like giving you a jolt that you're just not prepared to have. Here's what my suggestion for you is going to be. Is that you need to begin to apply those things that I just gave to you right now. You need to put practice, you can practice these things. While you're working through the other issues of chemical balancing and all the rest. I, I don't want you to go out here and just say, well, I, that pastor said, I'm out of here. I'm hey, listen, you better have something inputted and disciplined and in motion before you just unmedicate the cat or it'll come after your jugular and not just your hand. Are you with me? Are you, are you hearing me? But God will do it if you'll begin to do what you know to do. So start applying those precepts. Get them under your belt. Get them as disciplines in your life. And then we can talk about how you're going to get off the stuff. Because I'm telling you, I believe there's a day of wholeness for God's people. If this is the number two disease in America, can you imagine what would happen if God's people just got got set free and we would be able to look at a world that's popping thousands of pills, spending billions of dollars, and they look at us and say, how come... You don't feel like I feel. How come you don't act like I act? How come, how come? And we can say, I'm here to tell you, I ran into the cross. And the cross and Jesus set me free. I want to be free. How about you? You want to be free? I mean, really free? I mean, are you just tired of just messing around in life and getting yourself free? God wants you to be free. He can do it. I believe he can start it this morning. Would you stand with me real quick? Clay, if you'd help me out here just for a moment, son. We're going to break the spirit of heaviness this morning. We're going to begin. This will not be the end. You can't come forward and say, oh, I came to an altar. It didn't work. Nope. I am sending you with a homework assignment to start implementing in your life those things you need in order to become whole. I, I know I'm not supposed to apologize, but you have been patient, and I appreciate that. But this is so important. It is so important that God's people be whole. Father, I ask you right now in the name of Jesus to send your precious Holy Spirit to this place. And Lord, would you begin to release the anointing that would break the yoke of heaviness, the bondages of depression, 
that, Lord, you will cause in your people, Lord, a freshness and a wholeness to exist that has never been there before. Lord, I need you. We need you to do these things in our life. Lord, we confess right now we are unable in and of ourselves. We confess to you that it's easier, it's easier just to figure out is there something I can take once or twice a day? And maybe that is just my answer for the rest of my life. And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for sometimes it's just being lazy. And Lord, I don't want anyone to feel condemned. I don't. I know that people have struggled and struggled and my heart is towards them and your heart is. But Lord, I ask this morning, Lord, that you would send a genuine anointing to set people free. There are some people that just need to be free. And Lord, I can't do it. I'm not sure a doctor can do it. But Lord, you can do it. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. So Lord, come this morning. Come this morning. Come this morning. Lord, I give you thanks right now as you're going to begin to do this in people's lives.